So uh, if you've been with us uh, for Theological Equipping for the past couple of semesters, this is what we uh, have been doing. Uh, a couple of semesters ago, we did Bibliology, that is the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, we talked about inspiration, we talked about authority of Scripture, we talked about inerrancy, sufficiency, uh, we talked about how to study the Bible, so some of the issues that are related to uh, the doctrine of Scripture. Last semester, we did theology proper, that is the study of God Himself, His nature, His character, His attributes. We talked about things like omniscience and omnipotence. We talked about Trinitarianism. We talked about the hypostatic union, that is the uh, deity and humanity of Christ, that uh, uh, two natures in, uh, in one person. And then this semester, what we're talking about is, uh, is kind of diverse. Uh, we're starting with anthropology, which is the doctrine of uh, man will move into sin, uh, which is called homartiology, uh, and then we'll start to get a little bit into redemption, uh, but really most of that will be uh, uh, what we'll do uh, next semester. And so uh, with anthropology, last week we kicked it off, and uh, Zach talked about the essential nature of man. And so there were a number of different kind of ancillary topics uh, that he talked about uh, with the uh, the nature of man. So, uh, really, one of the crux of the uh, the uh, issues that he talks about uh, was the idea of the Imago Dei. We'll kind of expound upon that today. Uh, in other words, the image of God and how that was kind of foundational for our understanding of anthropology, uh, who we are as uh, as men and. Uh, women. He also talked about all of these different, again, ancillary uh, topics like uh, are we uh, trichotomists or dichotomists or monists? That is, do we believe that mankind is essentially three different things, body, soul, and spirit, or two different things, body and then soul and spirit being the same thing, or are we just one? So he talked about that. We talked a little bit about uh, creationism versus traducianism. Uh, which is kind of the idea of when does the soul when is the soul created? Uh, is that something that we inherit from our uh, parents, or is that something that's just simply uh, created anew? And I loved this line that uh, that Zach said. He said, "Welcome to the Parkway Church, where we t- we teach you everything you need to know and a few things that you don't." And uh, and so that was kind of last week's uh, conversation. We want to kind of move on. Uh, kind of having the, the, the foundation laid last week uh, as we talked about the nature of man into the value and dignity of human life. That's what we'll uh, talk about uh, today. And then let me tell you where we're going over the next uh, few weeks. So next week we'll talk about complementarianism uh, or gender roles. We'll talk about the fundamental difference that exists between man and woman. So that's certainly a, a spicy, controversial issue uh, in today's uh, culture, but that's what we will uh, talk about uh, then we'll kind of spend uh, four weeks uh, related to issues of sexuality. So having kind of laid a foundation of uh, human sexuality uh, and, uh, and the different sexes and genders within Scripture, we'll talk about issues related to sexuality. In, in particular, we'll talk about divorce and, uh, and remarriage and what the Bible says uh, about that. We'll talk uh, about uh, homosexuality. We'll talk about transgenderism. Uh, we'll talk about marriage itself. And so uh, this is where we're going. And so the question might come up, why? Why is it that we're spending so much time talking about transgenderism or homosexuality uh, or whatever it might be. And so I want to just give you a little bit on why it is that we're talking about these sorts of things. The first one is because the Bible talks about these things. The Bible is going to talk about transgenderism. The Bible talks about homosexuality. The Bible talks about divorce and remarriage. Uh, The Bible talks about these issues. And so therefore, it must be that God desires and even demands that we know these things. Nothing in God's Word is just kind of superfluous. Nothing in God's Word uh, is just simply that something that He says kind of off the cuff. He doesn't really want us to know about it. So that's the first reason we're talking about these things is because God is talking about these things. And the second thing that I want to say is just as culture is changing, as we move as a greater culture away from this sort of inherited Judeo-Christian uh, understanding or worldview, Uh, We are becoming more and more and more biblically illiterate uh, as a result of that. And so there is uh, a lot less shared presuppositions, a lot less shared assumptions. And so it's important for us uh, to really dive down deep into these subjects and what does the Bible say, because every one of us in this room falls into one of three categories. Every one of us in this room is one of three categories. The first one, maybe you are someone who's just never thought deeply about these issues at all. 
Maybe you're a brand new believer. Maybe you've been a believer your whole life. You just don't tend to think about these sorts of things. So you've never really thought about what the Bible says uh, about these particular topics. That's one class of people uh, in here. And so obviously, they need to know what the Bible says about this. There's another class of people uh, that might be those who uh, know what the Bible says, but they can't really uh, articulate it. They can't uh, really explain it. They couldn't adequately defend it, uh, which means at the same time, they can't make disciples into it, right? They can't teach their children. They can't teach their neighbors. uh, They can't teach those in their community group with them, whatever it might be. So they need to hear these things. And then lastly, maybe you're someone who has really studied these sort of issues, but there's always an opportunity for a refresher, Zach and I talk about this uh, amongst ourselves uh, a lot. There's never been, in the entire time that we've both been here at Parkway, there's never been a week that we've walked away not learning something, some little nuance, some little implication or application uh, of a a topic that we might have already studied and thought about and taught even uh, before. There's always something that we're getting from it. So even if it's just you're a a student of these things, uh, there's some little nuance or at least a refresher. So that kind of falls upon all of us. So that's why we're talking about these things, because not only do we want you to be equipped, but we also want you to be equipped in order to equip others, your children, your friends, your family members, your neighbors, people who ask you these sorts of uh, questions. So we want to really dive down deep into these things. So today what we're talking about is the value and dignity of humanity, the value and dignity of humanity. So just think for a second What are some of the potential applications or areas that we might talk about as we talk about the sanctity of human life or the value and dignity of human life? Shout out some. Euthanasia, right? Abortion. What else? Capital punishment. If you looked on your handout, you would have a number. You've named three of the four things that are on there. You might have suicide. You might have, there's a lot of things. But not only would you talk about these sort of issues, end-of-life issues that we'll talk about uh, today, but there's a number of bioethical things. Uh, so what do you do about IVF? What do you do about stem cell research? What do you do about genetic cloning, as we talked about uh, a little bit in the Q&A? Uh, what about surrogacy? These sorts of things are all related to this issue Not only do you have these bioethical uh, things and end-of-life issues, but other things like sexual abuse. That is an imago Dei issue. That is an issue of the dignity and value of humanity. Things like pornography uh, is an issue related to the value and dignity of uh, human life, the objectification of men or women or children or whatever. Uh, It might be all of these things are related to the fact that uh, people are not objects to be used or abused, but they are bearers of the image of God and should be honored and defended as such. You see how this is a really profoundly practical issue uh, for all of us, not just those of us who might be uh, you know, wrestling with uh, something that we did in the past or whatever it might be, that this has really real present implications for our uh, lives. And so as we talk about the value of human life, I want to kind of frame it in two different ways that we can kind of overcorrect or different ways that we can apply this incorrectly. Uh, the first one is that we can minimize our worth. We can minimize the essential value or dignity of humanity. That's what happens when you have murder. That's what happens when you have abortion, euthanasia, suicide, uh, the oppression or objectification of a certain class or gender, uh, whatever it might be, of people. So that's the first sort of uh, error that we need to avoid is the kind of minimization of the value and dignity of humanity. But there's another Uh, error that we should avoid, another ditch on the other side of the road that we need to avoid, and that is uh, to kind of detach our worth and value from its source, right? And so especially in today's culture where it's kind of Oprah-esque, you know, you just have this inherent self-worth, but it's not really uh, attached to anything. It's not really attached to uh, the source of uh, God, and so it leads to idolatry and pride and vanity and self-esteem and self-help and sort of new age spirituality. So these are the two dangers that we want to avoid. One is to minimize our worth. The other one is to find our worth apart from where the Bible grounds our worth, which is the Imago Day. And so I want to talk about uh, five propositions, propositions, and then a sixth, which is kind of an implication of those propositions as we 
kind of are laying a foundation for understanding the, the value and dignity of human life. So proposition one. Proposition one, humans are valuable. Simple enough. I think everybody in this room would agree with that. A lot of what we talk about today is not going to be novel. It's going to be kind of similar to how Peter will write and says, I desire to stir you up by way of reminder. And, uh, and so we inherently know this, I think. Humans are valuable. Matthew 10 Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. Matthew 6, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Matthew 11, he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So man, uh, mankind, humans are valuable. They're more valuable than a bird or a sheep or an ox or a goat or whatever it might be. There's this order to creation. It's not saying that we should try to figure out if uh, you know, whales are more important than gorillas or whatever it might be. But at least as regards to the distinct, distinction between humanity and all other creatures... There is an inherent order. So uh, in most areas, you'd say these isms are bad. Racism is bad. Sexism is bad. Ageism is bad. Uh, Zach talked last week about how we are, though, speciesist. Uh, We do say that there is a fundamental difference between humans and the rest of the created order, such that humans bear a unique role. They are of more uh, essential value. Zach said uh, last week, if there's a, a baby and a potted plant and a cat... Uh, in the road, and you're driving a car, you swerve to miss the baby, and you try to hit the cat, right? That's the goal there, because there is a fundamental difference. A baby is of more value. It doesn't matter if it's a billion cats, or a trillion cats, or potted plants, or dogs, or whatever it is, uh, there is uh, more value in, uh, in that uh, child. And so that's the first uh, proposition, that humans are valuable. Uh, the second one uh, is kind of the foundation Uh, for the first proposition. Proposition two, human value derives from relationship to God. Human value derives from relationship to uh, God. Our value derives from God's value. Think about uh, a painting by Van Gogh or Picasso or Warhol or something like this, one of these uh, sort of well-known, famous artists. And uh, the value of that painting might be kind of astronomical, Well, why is it astronomical? Is it necessarily because of the skill uh, or or because of the particular painting? No, it's more related to the esteem, the value, the worth, the reputation of the artist. Likewise, humanity derives its value from the reputation, the esteem, the honor, the glory of the uh, artist. And, And so what's the basis of man's worth and value? We talked about this last week. It's the Imago Dei. What does that mean? What does Imago Dei mean? The image of God. We talked about this uh, last week. Zach spent a really good time laying a foundation uh, for us. And so what does the image of God consist of? And throughout history, there have been a number of people who have tried to tackle that topic and said the image of God is, and then fill in the blank, is the fact that we're relational. It, it, It is the fact that we're moral. It is the fact that we're rational, that we have the ability, unlike dogs or whatever it is, to have conversations and to think through, you know, algebra or whatever it might be. There's all of these different things that historically theologians have said, this is the image of God. One of the primary uh, images of that is uh, the idea of uh, dominion, that the image of God consists of the fact that we were created uh, to image God in exercising rule and authority in uh, the earth. In a sense, I think it's all of those things. The image of God is, uh, there's a spiritual element, there's a moral element, there's a relational element, there's the element of, uh, of dominion. It's not just something that we possess, it's who we are. Uh, probably some combination of all of those different elements that we are the image of God. It's not just something that we have, it's something that we are. We are uh, the image of God. Zach talked last week about uh, that word uh, image from uh, the Hebrew, it's salem, and uh, it's the same word that would be used of idols. And, uh, and so throughout the, uh, the ancient world, uh, he talked about uh, the fact that there would be uh, kings who would build these great uh, gardens. So think of 
Babylon, the, the hanging gardens of Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar built, or think of uh, Solomon and, uh, and in Ecclesiastes, he talks about how he's built all of these uh, fantastic uh, gardens with fountains and all these things. And the point is, you go to that and you see the beauty of this cultivated earth, and it shows the beauty of the king, right? The beauty of the king who can manipulate creation in such a way as to uh, showcase its beauty and glory. And, uh, and then the, what the king would do is he would take this big uh, idol, an obelisk or something like that, he would place it in the center so that whenever you got to it, you would see an image of Nebuchadnezzar, you'd see an image of uh, Pharaoh, or you'd see an image of whoever it is, the king, and you would know, okay, this Nebuchadnezzar rules here. This is his garden. This is a display of his glory. Well, likewise, that's how we were created. We were created in a garden as a demonstration, as a, a visualization, as a representation of God's glory. So that whenever you would see any man or any woman, you would think Yahweh rules here. Yahweh reigns here. Look how glorious he is, how good he is. And so, Human value derives from this reality that we were created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 through 31, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. So you see there the idea of dominion related to image, uh, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And, uh, and on and on uh, it goes, but we won't read it for the sake of time. So that's the, uh, the second proposition, that human value derives from relationship uh, to God. So an implication of this is that for us to attempt to find our value, our worth, our esteem, apart from relationship to God, is vain. It's futile. It doesn't exist. We are dust, and to dust we shall return. What makes us valuable is that connection that we uh, are a demonstration, a display of the glory of, uh, of God. This is the problem with uh, you know, most literature out there about self-esteem and self-worth and self-help movements. It, it wants to get the value, the worth of man, the dignity of man, apart from the Imago Dei. It's kind of like money, right? You take a $100 bill, and that $100 bill doesn't have much innate worth, right? It's just some cotton and some dye. That's all it is. But it has worth because it's tethered to something. It's tethered to a federal obligation. Uh, so likewise, we don't have this innate worth in and of ourselves, but we are innately valuable in, in light of the fact that we are by nature uh, created in the image of God. Our value is derived from our relationship to God. Proposition three, human value is innate or intrinsic. What do innate and intrinsic mean? What do those words mean? What does something innate mean or intrinsic? It means owing to something's nature, owing to something's very nature, as opposed to contrast that with things that can be learned Things that can be earned or attained or achieved, right? Something that's innate is not learned, it's not earned, it's not achieved or anything like that. So why is it important for us to recognize that uh, our value is innate or intrinsic? Well, because if it can be earned, then it can also be what? Lost, right? If it can be earned, if it can be attained, if it can be achieved, then it can also be uh, lost. That's the reason that this is important. And if it can be lost then we might be able to say that there are some among us who don't bear the image of God. There's some among us who are, in a sense, subhuman, right? Which is what some would say of children, which is what some would say of the mentally challenged, the elderly, the disabled. And if some are less human, then they have less rights, including the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness and all of these sorts of things. And obviously, this is not just a theoretical exercise. This is the rationale for 18th century, 19th century American slavery. This is the rationale for the 1930s uh, and 1940s and uh, Hitler's extermination of the Jews. This is the exact reasoning here. These people are subhuman. These people are not as fully human as we are, and so therefore they have 
less uh, rights. So you see how essential this thing, whatever the Imago Dei is, you see how essential it is. Without it, our standard for who to protect, who to defend, who to honor, it becomes subjective. You defend, you want to honor, you want to say these people are human, but others might not be human. So those who have beards, they're superhuman. Those who don't have beards, they're not. They're subhuman or whatever it might be. Or reverse those if you don't like beards. Uh, those who are men have value, but women don't have value. Or only women have value. Or only the young or not the young or whatever it is. So in a sense, kind of the imago day is kind of this collective gravity that we all share in that keeps us tethered to our worth and value. And apart from this reality, the imago day. Everyone just kind of floats around. It becomes arbitrary and subjective. You just pick and choose who you think is going to be most valuable uh, as we kind of recreate others in our own image. Whatever it is that we think is most valuable, that's what we ascribe value to. And so without it, we kind of get the implications of kind of Darwinian theory. It's survival of the fittest or the strongest or the cruelest or whatever it might be. So proposition three, human value is innate. Uh, or intrinsic. Proposition four, that the image of God was defaced or corrupted or distorted, but not lost in the fall. It's distorted, but not lost in the fall. It's really important for us to see this aspect of continuity between how we originally created. So, as we read Genesis 1 earlier, this is prior to the fall of mankind. This is prior to the introduction of sin. And so if we're going to argue that mankind, if we're going to argue all of our modern applications of this uh, on the basis of the Imago Dei, we have to be able to show that the Imago Dei is something that we still bear today. It's not something that was just completely lost in the fall. So some passages uh, that show uh, this. Genesis 5.3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So Adam was created in the image and likeness of God. And then Seth is created in the image and likeness of God, mirroring the same language to show that relationship, that the Imago Dei is something that is going to be passed on to future generations. It's not something that, uh, that was merely lost at the fall. Genesis 9-6, obviously well after uh, the fall of mankind, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. In other words, this is still an abiding reality. It might have been distorted, it might have been defaced at the fall, but it's not lost. Exodus 23, the entire uh, reasoning, the rationale for uh, this command is because we were created in the image of God. You shall not murder. Exodus 21, 12 through 32, uh, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. All of these different commands throughout Scripture are related to the fact that uh, we are still created in the image of God. So we'll move on from that point. The point there is just uh, that we can make modern applications of this uh, Imago Dei because we still bear the Imago Dei. It wasn't something that we simply gave up at the fall. Proposition five, if all of the, the previous things are true, then all humans are made in the image of God and thus valuable. This is an implication of all of the above. The only humans who aren't valuable are humans who weren't made in the image of God. And since all humans are made in the image of God, all humans are valuable. Again, we don't believe in subhumans. Uh, everybody is either a human or a non-human. If you're a human, you bear the image of God. By the way, some people would say uh, that we see certain hints in, uh, in Scripture for some sort of hierarchy or, or priority, uh, kind of like there's... Uh, there's humans and then there's subhumans on the basis of, uh, this is just, this is not a very common thing, but it's, I've read it a couple of times, uh, on the basis of the fact that in the Mosaic Law uh, for regulations of worship, there were certain people that were prohibited uh, from uh, temple worship. Uh, children, the elderly, the deformed were all forbidden from certain aspects of the Mosaic uh, Law uh, regulations of worship. But the reason is not because they're inherently less valuable. That's not what the law is attempting to do. It's not attempting to say uh, children are less valuable or the elderly are less valuable or the deformed are less valuable or anything like that. Uh, what it's doing, if you remember Zach a couple of weeks ago in, uh, in preaching, he talked about the, the fact that, uh, uh, that the temple is meant to be an illustration 
The temple is meant to be the place where God dwells. And where does God dwell right now? He dwells in the heavens. So in a sense, uh, the temple is a picture of heaven. And, uh, and so uh, likewise, uh, God would uh, uh, prohibit certain people from entering into the temple as an illustration of what the eternal state is going to be like. So there's no deformed who are able to worship at the temple. Why? Because there's no deformity uh, within the kingdom to come. And so that's the reason there. It's not to show there's some sort of uh, hierarchy or distinction uh, uh, within uh, humanity, uh, but simply to show that in the eternal dwelling place of God, there are no disabilities or anything uh, like that. So all humans are made in the image of God and thus valuable. This is not the language of uh, the cultural elite, uh, not only within uh, America, but within uh, most of Western culture. Uh, the late Stephen Jay Gould, who was professor of paleontology at Harvard University, uh, actually critiqued the idea that human beings have any special status or any special origin at all uh, by suggesting that we are simply an accidental, and he used the word twig, accidental twig on the amazingly arborescent tree of life. Amazingly arborescent tree of life. So we're just an accidental twig. Uh, on, uh, on this greater uh, tree of life. We talked about this a little bit last week in the Q&A. The irony uh, that, uh, that PETA, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, has no position on abortion, but they have a position on everything else. They have a position on what clothes you wear. They have a position on what foods you eat. They have a position on the, the types of dog food that your dog should eat, all of these sorts of things. They have no position on abortion. You see this just sort of tragic reversal of roles and responsibilities, and uh, you see this uh, profound inconsistency where there's a reversal of the created order. Richard Dawkins uh, at Oxford uh, said something similar to Stephen Gold, that uh, we are just kind of incidental or accidental. We don't have any special privileged uh, position that's innate to us. Uh, and, uh, and so you have a professor at Harvard, you have a professor at Oxford who are saying these things. This is not uh, sort of the periphery. This is kind of the intellectual, cultural uh, elite, sort of these sacred institutions, and they represent the worldview that is continually being pressed uh, upon us, seeping into uh, uh, popular culture. The result is that there is no special status, no special quality, no special sanctity or dignity of life, and if humans really, uh, really are just some sort of biological accident, then why not abort in the womb? Why not uh, put them into Hitler's ovens or whatever uh, it might be out of uh, uh, political expediency? So, uh, all humans are made in the image of God and thus valuable. Our value derives not on the basis of uh, our level of uh, development, not on the basis of our gender or our race or anything else. It derived from the fact that we were all created in the image of God. And as an implication of that, Proposition 6, murder, assault, abuse, all of these sorts of things are all attacks not only on an individual human, but on the image of God itself. They're attacks on God Himself. In other words, all of our discussions, all of our discussions about human life and death and dignity and value, and objectification, and abuse, all of these things are predicated on our understanding of this thing called the Imago Dei. If Propositions 1 through 5 are true, then Proposition 6 is a necessary implication. So let me give you kind of a definitional statement for this. Simply by virtue of being human, mankind is valuable, and this applies to any and all humans. Mankind has intrinsic dignity and value as being created in the image of God regardless of developmental stage. Age, gender, mental capacity, physical capacity, or any other uh, factor. All right. So, those are the propositions. And so, let's get into some of the uh, specific issues. Uh, again, there are dozens and dozens that we could talk about. We named some of them uh, in regards to sexual abuse, pornography, IVF. I mean, there's, there's literally hundreds of things that, uh, that we could talk about uh, today. I've chosen just a few end-of-life issues in particular as being kind of the clearest, and then we can kind of filter down through that, or during Q&A here in a, a little bit, we can uh, touch upon some of those. So let's begin with abortion. I think that's when most people think of the sanctity of human life within the church, this is what uh, they think of. They think of uh, abortion. 
So uh, Roe versus Wade, anybody know the date of that? 1973, January 22nd. So next week we will have the 45th anniversary of, uh, of Roe v. Wade. Uh, some, by some estimates, there have been approximately 60 million abortions since Roe v. Wade was uh, the law of the land. In other words, that's two Texases. Texas has a population of about 28, 29 million. So two Texases have been aborted uh, since 1973. There are about one million abortions in the U.S. every year, which means about uh, 2,600 per day or one every 35 seconds. One-fifth of all pregnancies in the U.S. today end in abortion. In some areas like D.C. or New York City, that uh, number is as high as one-third. One-third of all pregnancies end in abortion. Uh, A number of people have noted the the fact that uh, abortion not only has these sort of universal uh, problems, but also it has this deep racist uh, roots. Uh, It's the leading cause of death among African Americans, uh, with 14.5 million since Roe v. Wade. In fact, it's more than all others put together. If you take all the other causes of death among African Americans over the past 45 years, put all of them together, more babies have been aborted, more African American babies have been aborted than all of those others combined. Uh, This is not surprising in light of the fact that the founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, was a noted racist, and that was her uh, intention. Her intention was to engage in eugenics, to get rid of this lower class of people, and, uh, and that's why most of these clinics are in low-income uh, and uh, in racially diverse areas. Uh, there's also a disproportionate number of abortions among Hispanics. I saw a, a headline of an online article that said, abortion restrictions pose a threat to Latina advancement. I think killing babies is more of a threat to Latina advancement than restricting the right to uh, an abortion. There's also these sexist roots to it, where the glory of womanhood includes this unique contribution of she alone is able to bear children. And yet what is fundamental to her and what is a, a, a fundamental aspect of her beauty and glory is kind of robbed of her and it becomes something that's incidental or accidental, or whatever uh, it, might, uh, it might be. So, the critical issue when it comes to abortion is this. When does a person become a person? When does a person become a person, and when does life begin? Is it some arbitrary stage in infancy, when they first emerge from the womb, when they first begin to crawl, when they first begin to talk? Is it implantation? Is it conception? Aristotle uh, the, uh, the philosopher, uh, uh, when he wrote about when life begins, he said it's when quickening occurs, which uh, in his uh, parlance was uh, when the mother first began to feel uh, the baby, which tells us something about the mother, but it doesn't tell us anything about the baby. It's like simply saying, because I received news today of something that happened three weeks ago, that thing must have happened three weeks, uh, that thing must have happened today. No, it just tells you when I experienced that thing. So likewise, the fact that the mother now feels the baby moving, uh, mothers know that happens at different times in different pregnancies. Sometimes you might feel it uh, a certain week, and sometimes uh, you might not feel it for weeks or months or whatever it might be. And so that's Aristotle's view, though. Uh, the logic of Roe is that it begins, life begins at viability, whenever that is. But again, that's an arbitrary thing. Uh, and so sometimes a, a baby... Uh, born in the second trimester is very viable. Sometimes babies that are make it all the way to the third trimester are not, uh, quote-unquote, viable. Peter Singer, uh, who is a professor at Princeton, he holds that uh, they are not afforded dignity or full humanity until they develop linguistic and relational capabilities. Think about that. He's a professor at Princeton, and so he says, this is not just an implication of what he says, he actually says that a mother should not be guilty of committing murder if she were to kill her newborn uh, infant. Why? Because they don't, uh, they're not afforded dignity or value or humanity until they develop linguistic and relational capabilities. What do all of these have in common? What does it have in common? Rose Logic and, uh, and, and Peter Singer and Aristotle, 
All of them are subjective, they're speculative, they're unsubstantiated, they're rather arbitrary, right? The Christian position is going to depend upon revelation and not mere speculation, not a guess, not our best estimate of when life begins. So why has the church historically landed on fertilization or conception as being the starting point? I thought this was a really interesting one that I had never thought about before, but I saw it uh, as I was studying uh, for this, and the, the first one is logic. And, uh, and the guy used this example. He said, imagine, if you will, that you go into a court and uh, you try to argue, I didn't kill an eagle, I just killed an eagle's egg. That wouldn't work within court. Why? Because we know, logically, we know that that eagle, that egg represents an eagle. And so it, it doesn't make logical sense for us to trade upon what we know in one area uh, in uh, another. So in addition to the logical sort of response, there's also scientific, the overwhelming position of even the secular medical community today is that life begins at conception. Since Roe v. Wade, there's actually been much more of the secular community has said, we actually believe that life begins at uh, conception. Today, it's actually considered a basic biological fact. As of this past year, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services officially announced a formal position that life begins at uh, conception. And then, uh, and then in addition to logic and, uh, and science, and by the way, with that science, we could go through, I mean, just tons of other examples uh, of that, but for the sake of time, we won't. In addition to logic and science, there's also the biblical argument. Now, obviously, the Bible's not a scientific textbook, and so it's not intended to answer all of our intricate questions about conception versus implantation versus uh, whatever it might be, but there, we do see hints in there. And abortion is not something that's foreign to the biblical environment. There is abortion that exists within the Greco-Roman world uh, for various reasons, similar to today, the reasons that, uh, that people in the first century uh, or earlier would have uh, abortions to prevent unwanted children, to hide evidence of sexual activity, to avoid the expenses of oath-rearing. In fact, the original Hippocratic Oath, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, the thing that doctors have to take, the, the original Hippocratic Oath, from 400 B.C. included a line in there about not giving anything to produce an abortion. And uh, so that's interesting. But the biblical evidence uh, for why we believe that life begins at conception, in addition to logic, in addition to science, Psalm 139, 13, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Psalm 55, uh, Psalm 51, 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother uh, conceive me. Luke 1, the, the, the story of John the Baptist leaping for joy uh, within uh, Elizabeth's womb. Exodus 21, that there is a penalty that is paid if, uh, if a child uh, who is in the womb is, uh, is hurt uh, as a result of two men that are uh, fighting. In other words, there's a value to that child within uh, the womb. So these are some of the biblical evidences, therefore, uh, on the basis of, uh, of this, to take the life of a human in the wound is to take the life of a human. Proverbs 6, 16 through 17, uh, we uh, preached on this a few weeks back. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. And there's no blood that's more innocent than a little baby in the womb. And God Himself presents Himself as the Father of the fatherless and protector of widows. He's the, the father of the fatherless. So, biblically, the case is uh, a child is a child, is a full human, even within the womb. And though, therefore, for us to take the, that uh, baby's life is uh, to be accorded with the word murder. Now, there are potential exceptions uh, to that that we'll just brief, briefly touch on. First one be, would be some sort of ectopic pregnancy where a, a baby is uh, outside of the womb. It's in an environment which the baby cannot survive, uh, scientifically cannot survive, or potentially if the mother's life uh, is uh, uh, at risk, although the eth ethics of that would be less uh, clear. Beyond that, all other issues are not very gray cases of rape or incest or whatever it might be, you have multiple victims, uh, so why would you then make a, uh, why would you punish one of the, the victims? And, uh, and so, implications of that, intentional abortion is sinful. Another implication of that, unintentional abortion is also uh, uh, to be avoided. 
The, uh, the Protestant church has, uh, has historically not agreed with the Roman Catholic church on prohibiting all contraceptives, all right? And so the, the Roman Catholic church historically has, has disapproved all contraceptives what, uh, whatsoever. The Protestant church has not agreed uh, on that, um, but we do have a responsibility to make sure that all of our contraceptives, if we use contraceptives, are actually just contraceptive, and they're, they're not abortifacient. They don't have some sort of function uh, where they are potentially going to abort uh, a, uh, a child. So for all of these issues related to uh, uh, the beginning of life, all of these issues related to medical technology, we have a responsibility to think carefully and critically in light of the Imago Dei about how, uh, what the implications of that technology uh, are. So like for IVF, in vitro fertilization, you know, medically, financially speaking, there is this uh, goal that is, I want, to, uh, I want to fertilize as many eggs as possible because it's cost-effective. But then what's happening to those eggs? They're being stored or they're being destroyed or they're being used for stem cell, stem cell research or whatever it might be. And so the rule of thumb uh, for us would be to fertilize only as many as you're prepared to implant and only implant as many as you're prepared uh, to bear. So those are a few thoughts on uh, abortion. Talk a little bit about uh, suicide. Not just, as in the case of abortion, that you can't take the life of others, but in suicide that you can't, as an implication of the Imago Dei, you can't take your own either. To unjustly take any life, including your own, is, uh, is murder. The stats on this are constantly changing, which I think is uh, fascinating. I wrote a paper on suicide uh, for a previous church uh, about seven years ago, and the numbers have drastically changed since then. Uh, as of now, there's about 45,000 people who die in the U.S. each year by suicide. It's the 10th leading cause of death, ranks as high as second in some age group. A person dies by suicide about every 11 minutes, and, uh, and so about 123 Americans take their life uh, every uh, day. So what is suicide? The intentional murder of oneself. And the word murder there is intentionally used to show the seriousness of it, to show how strongly the Bible would condemn it. And also helps us differentiate. There's a difference between suicide and jumping on a grenade to save others. You're in the army, there's a grenade that's thrown into the trench, you're saving all your buddies, jumping on it. That would not biblically be considered suicide. There's a difference there. So any and all actual suicide, including Physician-assisted suicide or anything else would be a sinful neglect of the value of human life and a sinful expression of the desire and control uh, for control and autonomy over your life and body. Autonomy, this idea that you are your own law, your own boss, your own God, whatever it might be, this is the chief virtue of today. And so all of these things that we're talking about, whether it's abortion, suicide, euthanasia, whatever it might be, all of these things are trading on this virtual uh, capital today, which is the idea that I can be autonomous, that I, the idea that I can be my own God or my own boss. Euthanasia, we'll talk about uh, quickly. Uh, what is euthanasia? It's from two words, uh, prefix eu, which means good, and thanatos, which means uh, dead. So it's, it's a good death. It's dying with dignity, which is ironic because biblically, death is anything but dignified. Uh, death is the last enemy to be destroyed, according to Paul. There is no such thing as a quote-unquote good death because death itself is an, uh, an enemy. But the key with euthanasia is uh, in, uh, individual autonomy, uh, man's insane opinion that he is or should be in control of himself. I thought Zach did a great job last week talk, uh, about talking about the various levels of control uh, that each of us are under. Uh, there's a sense in which our bodies belong to the government. We can be sort of drafted uh, or told what to do in certain uh, senses. Uh, to the church, in a sense, that your, your body is under the, uh, the authority of the church, in a sense. You're a member of this body, so you don't have full rights over yourself. To our spouses, Paul writes that a husband doesn't have rights over his body and a wife doesn't have rights over her body, so you're under your spouse, in a sense. And then to God, that's four levels of management. You're like fifth in line. You're not even close to being the CEO of your own life or body or whatever uh, it, uh, it might be. So the essential issue is who has the right to determine when your life is over? And the answer is God. 
You never have the right to take life in this way. But that doesn't mean that, there, that you have to do everything in your power uh, to, uh, to, to uh, protect life. So, I want to give you a, uh, just a quick case study here and uh, to see the difference. So, uh, case study number one, your 80-year-old grandmother has been fighting cancer for some time now and feels the emotional strain. She feels like she'll become a burden to the family. Her doctor notes that she seems to have lost her desire to live. Should she be able to, give her, uh, to have her doctor give her a prescription expressly designed to kill her? No, that would be an issue of euthanasia. Now, second case, your 80-year-old grandmother is in a coma and is registering no brain activity for the past few days. Should you demand that doctors keep sustaining her indefinitely by means of breathing apparatus and feeding tubes? Not necessarily, right? So we see there is a difference between uh, the responsibility that we have to not take life and our responsibility to protect life, that those things are not uh, perfectly uh, directly uh, related. Uh, The key questions are going to be, is there a prospect of recovery? The greater the prospect of recovery, the greater need for uh, us to uh, protect and preserve life. Uh, Are they already medically dead, as in this case where she's not registering brain activity? Uh, Are you actively taking their life, or are you you merely withholding something uh, artificial? And uh, and so those are some of the issues related to uh, euthanasia. I just want to quickly talk about one last thing, and uh, and that is the issue of capital punishment. We won't get into uh, all that much, uh, but... uh, the reason I want to mention it is because it is often viewed as this sort of uh, inconsistency within uh, Christians, and, uh, and so it's inconsistent, uh, according to a number of people, to, to say that we are pro-abortion, and I'm sorry, uh, pro-life, not pro-abortion. Tim's going to pull that on you. And uh, we are pro-life, but also pro-capital punishment. Now, I'm not telling you you have to be pro-capital punishment. You can very well look at our, our particular uh, justice system and say, I don't think that the American view of capital punishment is, uh, is good or right or whatever it might be. That's not my argument. My argument is simply that it's not inconsistent uh, to uphold both that abortion is sinful and also that capital punishment could be, at least theoretically, uh, a, uh, a, a good. Uh, and so, uh, the basis for that in, uh, in the Old Testament background, uh, we won't walk through these passages, but you have some passages listed there. In the Old Testament uh, background, there are eight words uh, in Hebrew that are used of taking life, whether of man or of beast. The word that is used for murder, as in thou shalt not murder, is never used. Get this, it's never used in context of war. It's also not used in context of capital punishment. It's not used in the context of hunting. Uh, or whatever it might be. It's not used in any instance where we say that we might say that might be a just taking of life. The word murder in Hebrew is always used of an unjust taking of life. Murder in Hebrew refers to both intentional homicide and also death caused by negligence or carelessness, like we would use the word manslaughter, but doesn't refer to self-defense, capital punishment, or just warfare. So, in other words, taking life is not what is always wrong, but rather taking life outside the boundaries that God has expressed. It's similar to the way that, uh, that we would say all sex outside of marriage is evil and sinful and wicked, and we don't support sex outside of marriage. But sex within marriage is good and righteous, right? Those are different contexts. It's not inconsistent to say, oh, well, you're pro-sex and you're anti-sex, no, we're talking about different contexts entirely. That's how the Bible is going to talk about uh, these sorts of issues. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Get this, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So again, you can make the argument that the, uh, the current context of the American judicial system uh, doesn't do enough to prevent the, uh, the potential killing of an innocent person. So you could be against American 
capital punishment. But biblically, you can't be against the idea of capital punishment itself. There's no inconsistency to say we're against the unjust taking of life within the womb and what we are for, the just taking of life uh, for a guilty person. Does that make sense? There's a fundamental difference. We're talking about categorical difference between abortion and, uh, and capital punishment. And, uh, and so that's the important thing uh, to recognize there. We can chat about that uh, if you want to set up a coffee or uh, you want to send an email or anything. But uh, I want to just give a closing, uh, closing kind of uh, application uh, to think through. So as you're thinking through any issues related to the sanctity and dignity of human life, the value of human life, if you're thinking about any issue related to the end of life or any sort of biomedical technology or anything like that, here are some questions uh, for you to, uh, to ask. First, does the Scripture speak to this issue explicitly? Is there an explicit text that the Scripture uh, would have? Second, does the Scripture speak to this issue by implication? We talk about this all the time. An implicit truth is just as true as an explicit truth if it actually is true. Anything that we derive by implication from Scripture is true if it's a genuine implication. So does Scripture speak to this issue by implication? Would this issue, whatever it, is, whatever it might be, would it distort or deny the inherent value and dignity of all human life? And then does this issue somehow suggest that some life is more or less valuable uh, than uh, others? So it, kind of a closing word, and then we'll have Zach come up. Again, this, the issue of the Imago Dei, the issue of the dignity and value of human life, is not just some fancy theological. This is not one of those lessons that's just, uh, Parkway will tell you everything you need to know and a few things you don't. We need to know these things. These are profoundly practical uh, for our lives as we understand uh, racism, as we understand chauvinism, as we understand feminism, pornography, sexual assault, uh, abuse, on and on and on. Uh, we could go, all of these uh, issues are directly related to the uh, doctrine of the Imago Dei. All of these things that are in the news lately. Think about how many of the things I just listed are in the newspaper even today. If you were to go to the front page, all of these sorts of things. And as Christians, we have a responsibility to conform our thinking around the biblical data and to be conformed in our thinking, to be transformed in our thinking, to think biblically, to think Christianly. That's a fundamental aspect of our discipleship, is to have our minds transformed that we might think God's thoughts after Him, that we might live uh, correctly in light of those uh, thoughts. So, uh, I'm going to uh, pray, and as I do, Zach's going to come up for uh, some Q&A, and, uh, and then we'll have about 10 minutes or so of Q&A, maybe a little less. Father, I thank You. Uh, for your word, I thank you for its uh, its truth. I thank you for its uh, its beauty. I thank you for the reality of the Imago Day that every one of us in this room is created in your image, and so we, uh, by virtue of that, we bear uh, glory and value and dignity and worth. And uh, that there's no one in this room uh, that uh, that does not bear those things. And so I pray that we might be champions. Of, uh, of humanity for your glory. And uh, so help us to think biblically about all of these uh, different subjects and uh, to live in light of that. And, uh, and so we ask these things because you're good and you do good. Uh, you love us and you've created us in your image. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.